0: man what a great day this is that's true you know one day we are actually going to be standing faultless before the throne in reality and that reality really starts here in the story that we're going to talk about today i think if 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 i was on one of those game shows and they asked me what's the one point in history you could go back and watch happen i think this would be it Not just for the supernatural wonder of of the angel and the earthquake and everything that happens at the resurrection, but really after that, after that is what fascinates me is these two groups, two small groups of people go running off in opposite directions and set into motion the rest of history. And so really that's what we're going to read about today. Can I ask you to please stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's word. Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let's all listen intently together to the reading of God's word. This is from Matthew chapter 28 verses 1 through 15. And now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. But he is not here, for he is risen, as he said Come, see the place where he lay, and then quickly go and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. (laughs) And they came up, and they took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if, anyone, if any of this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word for the astonishing hope that lays in, in it, Lord, we are awestruck by what it is that you're telling us here, Lord, and also what it tells us about us, about our hearts, Lord, so we pray that your spirit would open our hearts, Lord, and that you would, that you would convict us, but Lord, we pray that you would also bring life, we promise to bring life through your word, We pray that you would do that today, Lord. Please give us minds to understand, hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So, one of the downsides to... Having grown up in the modern world, the world of science or the world of scientism, whatever your viewpoint may be, is that we've all been indoctrinated since birth in this idea that the physical evidence is the ultimate deciding factor in any dispute. We are modernists through and through. If there's ever a dispute or a debate, what do we say? We say, let's look at the facts and then we look at the facts and we assume we know that when we know those facts, it's going to settle settle everything. We will know the truth and the truth will be readily apparent. And this idea has also infiltrated the church. I can't believe how many sermons I heard this this week. I was listening to different sermons preparing about how this passage was about all the evidence for the empty tomb and how powerful that is in converting sinners. And um, um, as if that was the main point of this passage. It's part of it, but it's not the main point. On the other hand, one of the upsides that we have as being raised in now the postmodern world, the world where a lot of the ideas of absolute proof and absolute facts kind of going the wayside, uh, one of the upsides to that is that um, we now know, or it's commonplace for us, for that unchallenged dogma of scientism. It's all starting to break apart. Think about, think about this. Think about, I mean, even back in the day, the John F. Kennedy assassination, right? Two different sides on that debate. Did Lee Harvey Oswald kill him by himself? Was it a conspiracy? Everybody comes together. They all look at the same group of facts and two groups spread apart with completely different opinions about what happened on that day. Closer to our time, 9 11, World Trade Center, same thing happened. Some people think that it was the government that set that up. I and mean, they look at the facts, other people look at the same facts, and they come away from it with radically divergent opinions. I mean, established, knowledgeable architects, demolition experts. I'm not making any, I'm not weighing in on which side is true or not. All I'm saying is that there's one set of facts. Two groups of intelligent people looking at those facts and coming apart with radically divergent ideas about what happened. Same thing with the vaccine controversy. Smart people, same evidence coming across with very diverse or very different opinions about what it is, what is true. We are just, and what that means is that part of. Where we're at in history right now is that we've really lost faith in the idea that, that facts by themselves absolutely prove things and that there's more to knowledge than that. And so, as a society, we're coming to grips with the fact that there's other things that go into the discovery of truth that are outside the world of so-called verifiable science. And that is helpful to us when we approach this text because... <clears throat> at the end of the day, that's what this passage is really all about. When you get down to it, this is the story of two groups of messengers, two groups of evangelists, if you will. Really, and both of them have witnessed, they've just seen the exact same events. And yet, and they had the very same facts. And yet, in their what's about to happen, They're, they're carrying the seeds within that of two conflicting stories. Let me run the timeline real before we start in earnest. Let me run the timeline of what I think how this happened and how it went down in order. First, right before the passage that we just read, there's the story about the chief priests who are a little nervous about all those predictions that Jesus made about rising from the dead so they go to Pilate and they get Pilate to allow them to take the temple guard and secure the tomb, which already has a 4,000 pound stone rolled in front of it. But they set up soldiers and they seal the rock so that no one can get in. Second thing an angel, a supernatural being of light, descends visibly from heaven. And as he hits the ground, there's a violent earthquake that spreads out in all directions. He goes over, he moves the 4,000-pound stone clear out of the way, and then he sits on it and he looks at the guards. What's up? And the guards, predictably, as in all interactions between humans and supernatural beings in the Bible, they don't say, oh, wow, an angel. They are so afraid, they literally, they they go into convulsions, and they pass out, literally frightened to death. What we would say, they were frightened to death. They pass out cold. The women arrive to the tomb. They see the angel, supernatural being, stones moved out of the way, dead guards everywhere, uh, who appear to be dead at least, and the angel then, next thing, instructs the women to inspect the empty tomb, Go tell the disciples that Jesus has been resurrected. And they begin their sprint back to the disciples. They meet Jesus on the way. Finally, the guards wake up and they begin sprinting back to the temple and the chief priests with their version of the story. Two groups, two messengers heading in opposite directions, both physically and spiritually. with what will very soon become conflicting stories. And, and, and the suspense of it is, the suspense of the drama is, who's going to win? As you read the story, whose truth, whose capital T truth, is going to be believed? Whose story is going to win out? And let me tell you, that the odds are not in favor of the women. As opposed to the temple guard, the elite troops of the Jewish state. Uh, the odds are not in favor of the women. They represent the powerless in this story, while the the temple guard and the chief priests represent the powerful. If this was happening now, who would you bet on? Would you bet on the international corporation or the village of poor people? Would you bet on the mortgage bank or the homeowner? Would you bet on the government or the flower shop? Would you bet on Monsanto or the family farm? We know how those stories end. But that's the other thing that this passage is all about. See, in the great disparity of earthly power. In our world, the rich and the powerful always win. But what this is telling us is that in this great disparity of earthly power, the gospel is the great equalizer. The gospel makes the the strong weak, and it makes the weak strong. And that's the big idea of this passage. This is what Paul, or this is what, I'm sorry, Matthew, what Jesus wants us to know more than anything else, is that the gospel makes the strong weak and the weak strong, even as it continues to spread across the face of the earth. Let's look at that one, one part at a time. First, the gospel makes the strong weak. Look at verse 11 through 15, the first part of 15. And while they, meaning the women, now, were, uh, were going back, while well, they, the women, were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they'd assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and they said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. So who are the powerful in this story? The powerful in this story are the chief priests, two groups. Really, chief priests and the temple guard. The temple guard are like the seal team of the Israeli army. They are elite troops. How do we know that? Because this is a matter of national security. National security, you don't send the guys hanging out at the barracks to do the job. I just, I'm just, I just finished reading one, uh, No Easy Day, the story of the, uh, the, the capture of Osama bin Laden. And in that story, they took... They didn't use a standing seal team. They took the best senior guys from all the different teams and put them together in one team because it was that important that the mission was successful. And so we have every reason to believe that these guys are just like that. The chief priests and the elders are basically the Sanhedrin, the Congress of Israel. These are the connected millionaire politicians, the famous philosopher, theologians. There are the religious rock stars of the day. And what do they know? What do they know about what just happened? The evidence? What are the facts that they've got? And let's remember, they believe the guards' story because their response wasn't, off with your heads. And so they believe what the guards had just told them was true. They probably felt the earthquake. No reason to believe otherwise. Here's what they know. This is is what's so mind-blowing. First, they know the Scriptures. These are the theologians. These are the learned guys. They know about the prophecies more than anybody. They are in a better position educationally to know that what Jesus said about himself was true, to know that the prophets spoke about him, but they rejected it. And second, they know Jesus' own predictions of his resurrection as proof of who who he was they were nervous enough about that to set the guard in the first place. So you know, it was on there, they were thinking about it. Third, they knew about the extensive miracles that Jesus had done. In fact, they knew that he just raised Lazarus from the dead, two miles outside the city of Jerusalem a week before this happened. And these are the same guys that showed up uh, with the flowing robes in the temple when Jesus had taken over the temple and were indignant about the fact that he had just healed thousands of people. And now, and now they know, on top of all of that, now they know that a supernatural being, an angel, has descended onto the tomb where Jesus was laid, an earthquake shook the ground he moved a 4,000-pound stone out of the way, took out the temple guard, and now the tomb is empty and Jesus is missing. And they know, or they should know, where he is. And so the big question, the important question is, how do they respond how do they respond to all that? How would you respond? I mean, don't you read that and think to yourself, I'd buy it. I mean, wouldn't you buy that for a dollar? If your guards came to you and said, I mean, what if you walked out of here today and an angel came down from heaven and blew a big hole in the street and threw some buses around and, and uh, raised some people from the dead and they walked by you? You know, you would, you would, if you saw that, don't you think that would be enough For you to say, I believe it. How do they respond? The simple answer, the basic answer, is they start lying. They start lying to everybody around them. They start making plans to lie to people who might find out. They come up with a grip of money to pay people off to lie with them. And I'll guarantee you, in all of that, they're lying to themselves, trying to lie for themselves. And they have definitely, definitively, gone on the defensive. I think that's one of the most amazing things of this passage. Up to this point, they've been on the offense, but now, post-resurrection, they are absolutely on their heels in damage control mode, and Jesus and the Spirit are moving forward. And they are desperate. They are desperate men. So really, I mean, the better question is why? Why with all that evidence? I mean, these are theologians, and this is the hope of Israel. And There are supernatural miracles everywhere. Why don't they buy it? Why aren't they turning? Why aren't they changing them? Why don't they go Okay? Okay, okay. Okay, okay. Enough. We get it. We get it. Okay? You're the Messiah. We were wrong. We're sorry. What do you want us to do? But they don't. I've been thinking about this all week. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, there's this natural explanation. They didn't want to lose their power. We've been talking about that all, you know, all through the gospel of John. These guys have been running into it, and every turn, they don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their earthly standing. They just don't want. They don't want to do that. But, there's, but there's, is that enough for them to, to dismiss all this? I mean, they're theologians. They also know about the power and glory of heaven. It's, it, there's, there's, gotta, there's something bigger that's happening than just we don't want to lose our power. You know? That's true. John says in verse 39, or 539, chapter 539, we went through a while ago, that about, he says to these same guys, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Instead, they just want to blow each other up and praise each other and and." and, Be the man. But there's something more to it than this. There's something supernatural at work too. Jesus also says to these same guys, when they're pressing him, pressing him in the temple, tell us, tell us who you are. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I told you. I did tell you. And you didn't believe me. Not only did I tell you, but I did a bunch of miracles to prove it, and you didn't believe that. (sighs) But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. There's a supernatural blindness that is happening to these men that is above and beyond evidence. I mean, this just... Just, this just says so much about us and about how much we how rationalist we are, about how we believe that if we could just get the right evidence, the right arguments, that we can just convince people to become Christians. And what this is and all the sermons I listened to this week, it was all about that. But this saying, this is saying, no. It doesn't help. It won't help. It can't help because there is a spiritual blindness. That is in place that only God can remove. And that's why these men don't buy it. And that's scary. That's really scary. There's a, uh, there's a Jewish ra- uh, a rabbi, Jewish theologian. His name is uh, Pinkas Lepid. He's a New Testament scholar, Jewish came to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus was a real historical event, supernatural, historical event, believed it, and then dismissed it as like just a random miracle that was part of the Jewish tradition anyways. Would not, even though he, he was a, a, a man who in his work had to face the evidence of the resurrection, which is more than compelling And being intellectually honest, he had to say to himself, yes, best explanation, I'm a a monotheist, I believe in God. Best explanation, Jesus was resurrected from the dead by God. But that doesn't mean he's the Messiah. (laughs) Why? Spiritual blindness. Sad truth is, Is that if you don't want to believe in the resurrection, there's not much we can do for you. There's nothing I can do for you as a pastor. There's nothing I can do for you as a theologian, as a philosopher, as an apologist. There's nothing I can do for you if you refuse and just do not want to believe that it's true. If you refuse to consider that it's true. No matter... No matter the fact, I'm going to make some startling statements right now. No matter the fact that the New Testament is the most historically reliable document that we possess from antiquity, fact. Even though the death and resurrection of Jesus is one of, and one of the best attested historical facts in ancient history, it doesn't matter. No, matter. no amount of evidence, no amount of evidence, no argument is able to convince someone who does not believe want to believe because it is a supernatural thing. You cannot think your way out of it. You can only pray your way out of it. And that requires a willingness to believe and a willingness to submit yourself to God's wisdom over your own. And praise God that the guards weren't the only group running away Back to their headquarters that night. Because, point one, the gospel makes the strong weak, but point two, the gospel makes the weak powerful. The gospel makes the weak strong. Look at, I'm going to read verse 5 through 10 now. But the angel said to the women, Do not you be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified he is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Who are these people? These are the weak. Why are they weak? First of all, they're mostly working poor Some middle class, almost all of them. A few few people here and there in the New Testament, sprinkled through, that were wealthy. But for the most part, fishermen, tradesmen, blue collar, no status. (laughs) They could not call their congressmen and make anything happen. They are almost ethnic minorities. Like we talked about last week. Uh, they're Galileans, although they're Jews to the Jewish Jews in Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem Jews, to the real Jews, TM, they're Galileans, which means they're almost foreigners. They're, they're in the car, but just barely, just barely put up with, uh, and so they're ethnic minorities. They got nothing, and most importantly, they are women. And in that culture, as you know, women had no status among those who had no status. <laughs> it's a good evidence while we're here. It's true. The testimony of women was not even admissible in court. Right? I think two, two women had to testify to make up for the testimony of one man because women were just not, um, they were not thought highly of in that culture. It's a bad thing. It's true, though. And so, nobody trying to write a convincing story in that day to those people would have made women be the very first messengers or the witnesses to the resurrection. Not anybody that that wanted their story to be believed. If somebody was making this up, they'd have made it a lot more convincing than that. But here's the even more amazing thing that I want to point out in this, is that Although in that day and age, yes, it's true, women were not highly thought of. I want you to see how highly Jesus thought about women. When the angel tells them to go, tell, he's using similar verbs that Jesus again uses in the very next section of this gospel to tell the apostles to go and tell in the Great Commission. Jesus, is, he has made these women to be the apostles to the apostles. That's amazing. Nobody would have done that had it not been an accurate reflection of what happened. Nobody would have made that up. What that tells us is the honor, the honor that Jesus intentionally gave women and recorded it in the scriptures for all of us to remember all of us under the curse who want to think that there may be some disparity in equality. There is not. This does not mean we can't extrapolate this out and use this as an argument against for for the ordination of women and the and the the, the structure that God has given us in this very distinct ways that we have been called to submit to one another in the, in, the, in the worship of the Lord. But it does tell us that women are highly honored and that Christianity has lifted women up to an, to an honor that was unheard of in the ancient world. Okay, sermon within a sermon. Super important point. What do these women know? Well, First of all, they stumble onto what looks like a supernatural crime scene. They feel the earthquake, and they show up. They see the angel, uh, and they see dead guards everywhere. You might remember that angels in the Old Testament were not the angels that we think of now. Angels were the messengers, and they, were the, 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 uh, the, they carried out God's judgment. There's a story in the Old Testament that these women would have been very familiar of, of an angel taking out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one shot by himself. Sodom and Gomorrah, same thing. Stories throughout the Old Testament of angels annihilating people. And so these women come up to this scene. They see the angel. They see dead guys everywhere. And they are scared. They are frightened. But they they are terrified. But then the angel directs them. Do you know what he says? And I read it. I added the word in there. If you're reading along this in the, in, a, in the ESV, ESV says, the angel says to the women, do not be afraid. You know what it really says? It says, do not you be afraid. In contrast to these guys. These guys need to be afraid. They are rightly afraid. But you, don't you be afraid. Why? Why? because I know that you have come seeking Jesus. The crucified one. Can you imagine that? All the fear that they must have had in their heart and this angel saying to them, I know you're on the team. You're with us. You're with us. We've got you. Don't be afraid. Don't you be afraid. Look in the tomb. I want you to see. Look. And they look in and it's empty. Empty except for the grave clothes. And then he says, Go tell the disciples what's happened. And then they run away. Best, second best line. In the whole passage, with fear, they're still terrified because of what they just seen, but they're at the same time they are running terrified, but with great joy uh, at the same time. And then finally, the last thing they know is that they know Jesus because Jesus has made himself known to them. A little later, he's going to let the guards run right by and not say a word, but the the women run by and, and he greets them. <laughs> the word it's it's a it, it's the commonest word for greeting in the in, in in New Testament times. It's basically like Jesus walked out and said, "Hey, what's up?" <laughs> just like that, no trumpets, no angelic choirs, just their friend comes out and says, hey, surprise, (laughs) it's me. (laughs) And what do they, how do they respond? They respond in worship. They worship. They worship. They don't make up some nonsense story about how it's not true. They worship. And in their worship, they are elevated. How? I mean, literally, they hit the deck and they grab his feet. That's a real thing. In that day and age, that's how you paid homage homage to kings or to great leaders. They literally hit the deck and they grabbed his feet. And in that move, they were elevated. How? Because the powerful on earth are only powerful as long as the earth is here. In other words, once you're dead, or once you're no longer on earth, you're not powerful anymore. Amen? Remember in Philosophy 101 when they brought the concept up about maybe the whole universe is a dust mite floating through the chapel right now? What if that's true? What if that's truer than that philosophy professor ever, ever wanted to believe? What if there is a whole giant world beyond what we know that we can't even see that is actually the real world? Do you know, I learned today that in steeples, in old steeples, they used to have eight sides and they have eight sides because it symbolized the eighth day of the week. If you read the New Testament, sometimes it says, and on the eighth day, on the eighth day, and you're like, what does that come from? It came from the idea that Jesus, on the first day of the week, his resurrection ushered in the whole new age in such a way that we were were coming into a different day, the first day of eternity, the first day of forever, a whole new day. The eighth day was the portal into a brand new world. That's how they thought about it. And that's what just happened to them. Best line, I think, in this whole passage is Jesus looks at them and says, He doesn't say, Go tell my disciples. He says, Go tell my brothers. That's heavy. They were disciples. At the last supper, they became friends. And now that he's been raised from the dead, and he has affected our salvation, he was saying to them is that you have now, it's on. You've been adopted. My father is your father. You have, you have already entered into the new age. And that means that we're brothers. That's In Greek, that's brother and sister, Adelphoi. He's saying you've been adopted into the family and they and we have already entered into the new age. And we will one day become more powerful than we can ever imagine. And all this is gonna go away. That's the promise. Not long. Not long at all. So now we ask, why? Why did they have that response? There's certainly a natural element to it. They wanted, wow, did they want to believe that this was true, right? But at the same time, they were not expecting any of this. Total surprise. So there's a natural element to this as well. Right after Jesus told those chief priests that the reason they did not believe is because they were not his sheep, he followed it by saying this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand and my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's two hands. God the Father, Jesus, like this, you're right in there. Anybody gonna get you? Nobody's gonna get you. Nobody's gonna get you. No one's gonna get us. Truth is that if we believe this, if you're sitting here and you believe this right now, not because you thought it through either. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> it's because God drew you to Himself. He drew you to Himself. And He drew you to Jesus. And He has opened our minds and given us the Spirit of life. And He will never let us go, which means that we are already home. Can't see it. And there's a lot more to come. We are in the wilderness. Soon we'll be with the Lord. And then one day, this is reality. One day we will be resurrected from the dead, just like Jesus has been, except in resurrection bodies, totally different bodies, full of power. Sinless, perfect beauty forever. That's what happened. That's what happened on that early morning of resurrection day. And it continues. Point one, the gospel makes the strong, weak. Point two, the gospel makes the weak, strong. Point three, as it continues to spread across the face of the earth. I'm going to read the second part of verse 15. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The story began with two groups of messengers hurrying off from the very aptly named epicenter of this earthquake. We use that word metaphorically to mean the center of of things, the beginning, the the, the the ground zero of events. Matthew uses the same word here, spread. He uses it here, and he uses it one other place in chapter nine, where he talks about the news of Jesus and the healings spreading out as his fame became known throughout all the land. And he does that I think on purpose to focus our mind on the fact that there are now two stories spreading. The picture is of two conflicting stories about Jesus spreading out in concentric circles all over the face of the earth. One story proclaiming the resurrection from the dead and everything that that means for us and for the world. And the other story trying to explain how that's not true. One story is positive, trying to explaining what happened. The other story is negative, trying to explain what didn't happen. The gospel and the anti-gospel, as it were. One story has remained the same throughout the millennia, that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And that is the proof to us that our sins are forgiven. And one story morphs and changes continually as it tries and attempts to explain away the different parts of the evidence to different generations of people as they come and go with different sensibilities about truth. It does the same zigzagging path. Empty grave, swooning, stole the body, never happened. Jesus never existed, whatever. You want to find out what the flavor of the day is, Turn on the History Channel three weeks prior to Easter and you'll hear what they're selling this year. Something. But it's not the truth. And in this story, we see the very beginnings of that cosmic reality happening right here. One group of elite soldiers runs one way. A group of terrified women runs the other way. And what we see is the very beginning of this global conflict, while these two opposing forces are still within meters of one another, but soon they're going to reach us where we are with the world in conflict over which one of these stories is true. What do you think? Which one are you going to believe? Which way are you going to go? Well, here's the big takeaways in conclusion. Big takeaways from all this. First, is that the job of the church is to proclaim the gospel more than it is to prove it. It took me almost 10 years of Christianity to learn that, there's, that apologetics and evangelism are radically different things. We have, one of our professors used to say there's no altar calls in apologetics. And he was, that was... It's a very wise statement. There's a good place for arguments. There's a good place to present all this evidence. But at the end of the day, what happens, what brings people to faith is the movement of the Holy Spirit on the basic understanding of what the gospel is. And so what that means for us is that's good news for us. You don't have to master every apologetics argument in the book. The bad news is that that means it's hard, it means we have to be out, we have to love people, and we have to be in their lives and be willing to get messy so that we can earn the right to speak truth into their lives. Second thing, big takeaway, is that the job of the spiritual seeker is to pray more rather than know more, and man, nothing rubs us as Americans more wrong than that. As we, are, we absolutely believe that we come to know something with our minds first and then we believe it. But the gospel is the opposite of that. You have to be willing to believe, willing to pray that dangerous prayer that God would reveal himself to you as he truly is, more than you want to tell him who he should be. Uh, and that is, that is evidence. If you're willing to do that, that is evidence of the working of the Spirit. It's a dangerous prayer, but it's a good one. And finally, the resurrection means, above everything, that we're allowed to believe in happy endings. Isn't that great? I was listening to Tim Keller earlier this week, and he was talking about how if you're a New York film critic, you, you hate happy endings because that's just not how the world is. We know the world doesn't. Nothing ends happy. If you're happy now, just You wait it'll get unhappy. <laughs> and in a in a certain perspective that's true, but what the gospel says is that there's something beyond that. There is a happy ending. There is justice. Everything will be made right. That our hope is rational and not irrational. We don't have to buy we don't have to buy the nonsense that we have to be depressed because life sucks. Now yes, then no. Our hope is rational. And that is a a beautiful story. So what it means above everything for us is that Christianity is not only true, but it is also beautiful. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and for what it tells us about you, what it tells us about him, what it tells us about us. Lord, we freely admit that we are sinners. We want to tell you who you are more than we want you to be who you are so we can get what we want to get, even though that's super short-sighted. So, Lord, we thank you that you have raised Jesus from the dead, that you did it in public, and that you did leave tons of evidence, tons of historical fact behind so that our faith is not in just blind faith and wishful thinking, but our faith is in the best evidence, Lord. We also realize that we would never be able to believe that truth if our hearts wanted to believe something else more, if our hearts wanted to believe that we were God, if our hearts wanted to believe that we were like God. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have rescued us from death and that you have given us new hearts. And we pray, Lord, for all of our friends and family, and for everyone we know who does not know you, whose heart is still captive. We pray, Lord, that you would save them and that they would see the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus uh, in, in the same beautiful way that we do, Lord. We thank you for all these things. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.